Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My son Peter in 2014 was a 13-year-old, healthy, fit, fun-loving teenager. He just had his birthday, it was coming up to Christmas. He went off to the school trip to Germany to the Christmas markets. Beth Baldwin and her son Peter lived in the Welsh city of Cardiff. We come back from Germany and he had a bit of a cough and a cold and it got progressively worse. Um, we took him to the GP because he was really unwell, sort of flu-like symptoms. She diagnosed a chest infection and that was the end of it, sent us home with antibiotics. Within 24 hours, we realised that he was really, really unwell and his breathing became laboured. He was a bit more unresponsive and, you know, it had gone from flu-like to sort of really, really bad. And in a panic situation, I, I had to dial 999. This was New Year's Eve 2014. The first responder arrived at our house and within 30 seconds of walking through my door, he'd pricked Peter's finger and he told me he was a type 1 diabetic and in DKA. Diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA, is a complication of diabetes. It's caused by a severe lack of insulin in the body. It's critically dangerous within minutes, within hours. It's that critical, which is why when mainly children get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at a teenage age, it's really critical that they get that help straight away. They go straight to A&E. Within a few minutes, Peter was admitted to hospital in Cardiff. The team were on hand there, ready, waiting for him. And they all tried so, so hard. They, they gave him everything he needed and they were, they were brilliant with him. But... He fought for six days and his little body just just couldn't cope. His body didn't know what to do. And, and we, ne- we never got that chance to, to speak to him and tell him. And that, that, was, that was the end for him. That was his time. It's been a very, very tough last eight years that we've had to live without him and... And of course, I've got a lifetime without him now. And his legacy is to ensure this doesn't happen to anyone else, because this, this was preventable. Deaths due to type 1 diabetes can be avoided with a timely diagnosis and appropriate treatment with insulin to control blood sugar. But managing the long-term condition isn't as simple as just injecting a hormone. It involves thinking very carefully about all kinds of things, from what you eat to how much energy you're using on a daily basis. That can be hard, especially for children. People with type 1 diabetes need some better options. Fortunately, medical researchers are on the verge of providing some. 
Just over a week ago, the first new therapy for the disease was approved by America's Food and Drug Administration. It came a hundred years after the first medical use of insulin. The new drug, called teplizumab, can delay the onset of type 1 diabetes in children. Could the medicine herald a new era for people with the condition? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today, we'll explore how scientists are finding ways to reduce the burden of type 1 diabetes. There are seven other drugs that have shown the ability to slow the disease. So the door is open now that we can provide a lot of things, combinations of things. And we'll ask if there could ever be a cure. There have been some really good advances recently addressing the problem of insulin dependence by making these insulin-producing beta cells from stem cell sources. More than 400 million people around the world have diabetes. It's a condition where the amount of glucose in a person's blood is too high, which happens when they don't have enough of a hormone called insulin. The vast majority of people who live with diabetes have type 2. Here, the body can't make enough insulin or it doesn't work well enough. Type 2 diabetes can usually be managed through diet and medications. Today, though, we're going to be focusing on the 9 million or so people with type 1 diabetes. These people cannot produce insulin by themselves and instead rely on daily injections of the hormone to stay alive. Someone who knows a lot about that is the producer of this podcast, Jason Hoskin, who's had the condition since he was 16. Jason, now you are normally not in this room with me. It's very disconcerting to have you here. Uh, Thanks for joining me, though. It's strange to be in here too, Alok. Well, we're here to talk about something quite serious, which is the type 1 diabetes, which you are a living example of. Tell me what it's like to live with a condition. So having type 1 diabetes affects pretty much all aspects of my day-to-day life. But I think to understand it, you need to understand what happens um, when you eat. So after I eat, after we all eat, carbohydrates break down into glucose, and then that's what the cells need to function properly. When you don't have insulin, that glucose can't get into your cells, which means that the body can end up breaking down its own fat and muscles to try and power those cells. And that's when we produce acids called ketones. And when they build up to dangerous levels in the body, you can end up with a situation like Peter's, which is called diabetic ketoacidosis. So if type 1 diabetes is left untreated, all hell can break loose. That is why I need to inject insulin every time I eat. So I calculate the amount of carbohydrates in my food and then I dose myself appropriately and that helps my body function properly and the glucose can enter into the cells. So in a sense, it's not about you just injecting insulin once or twice a day. You have to be very careful how much insulin you're using to make sure that it matches with the amount of food you're eating, the amount of glucose and carbohydrates you might be consuming. And I suppose also it makes you think very carefully about what you're eating. Yeah, that's right. So you have to think about everything that's in your food, but you also have to think about a variety of other things. So if you're doing exercise, that can affect your blood sugar levels. It can make it go up and then drop really suddenly. 
if you're drinking alcohol, that can do all sorts of weird stuff. And then there's also things that you might not think would affect your blood sugar, like stress, that can make it go up or down. It sounds like a bit of a roller coaster that you have to kind of be mindful of all of the time. So just tell me, how do you know when to inject insulin? So I've talked about this on the show before. I wear a continuous glucose sensor. So that measures my blood sugar every minute of every day. So I scan my phone against the sensor and that tells me what my blood sugar is. If it is higher than a certain amount, then I need to inject insulin. But I have to be careful because if I inject too much insulin, it can go low and then I'd need to correct that by eating or drinking more sugar. And some people, instead of doing injections, they have insulin pumps, which are devices that sit on your belt with a cannula that goes under the skin to deliver the insulin. And that doesn't do anything automatically, but it just replaces the need to carry an injection pen around like I do in my pocket. Okay, and so how many times a day on average are you injecting some insulin? So I have to do one long-acting dose every evening. That kind of gives me a baseline level of insulin. Some people do two. I used to do one in the morning and one in the evening with a different type of insulin. But at the moment, I'm just doing one. But then probably I will have maybe five or six short-acting doses during the day. That's either to correct my dose or when I eat something or if I snack or something like that. So that's already, as you're painting a picture of something, that's quite a big cognitive load all day long. I mean, I guess you get used to it to some extent, but it's still quite complicated. Now, you do all of that to make sure that your blood sugar levels are controlled well. What happens, though, if people with type 1 diabetes don't manage to control their blood sugar? So we've already heard about what happens if blood sugar goes too high. You can develop symptoms like Peter's. He was really thirsty. He needed to go to the toilet all the time he eventually had flu-like symptoms. The fix for that would have been a diagnosis of diabetes and then he would have been put on an insulin drip in the hospital and that would have brought his blood sugar back down and avoided getting to that dangerous stage where he's developing too many of these ketones and it's eating up his muscle and fat. But that's quite rare in the short term and an alarm will go off if my blood sugar is going too high so I shouldn't ever get to that stage. And most people in Britain certainly wear the sensors now, so they shouldn't get to that stage either once they've been diagnosed. But in the long term, if your blood sugars run too high for a long enough time, you can develop complications, typically in the eyes, the feet, the heart or kidneys, and elsewhere really, because having a high blood sugar can affect all sorts of organ systems. In the shorter term, though, as well, if you miscalculate the amount of insulin you need or if you just don't have a biscuit to eat or something, if you need to actually get your sugar up, what happens then? Uh, that is not a brilliant situation to find me in. That's called hypoglycemia or hypo, which means low blood sugar. And it can be really dangerous if it's not treated quickly with sugar. If blood sugar drops too low, then you can become unconscious and you can actually end up needing an injection of something called glucagon. Now, hypoglycemia is often caused by too much insulin, so you can think of it as sort of like the drug's worst side effect. But even milder hypos, when my blood sugar drops, I can get a bit dizzy, I can get a bit shaky, and I can start sweating. And sometimes uh, some unusual behavior can occur, so I could slur my speech and be a bit clumsy. And it's kind of like if you had seen me drunk, Alok, which obviously you haven't. It sounds very serious. I mean, I don't want to make light of it, but it sounds quite unpleasant all around. Insulin clearly is the life-saving treatment here, but it's a century old. And I just wonder what you think of it. You know, you're managing with it, but you know, what do you think of it as a treatment? 
Well, I'm, I'm sort of in two minds about this because it's not a huge burden for me living in Britain where there's a free healthcare system. It's manageable. Insulin is readily accessible. But access to insulin in other countries does remain a problem. It's very a, expensive in the States. It's a very expensive drug. And for all the reasons we've just talked about, it's really complicated to live with type 1 diabetes. And I just wonder why in the last 100 years since insulin's been around, there hasn't been any more innovation. I wonder why we haven't found anything better than insulin yet. Well, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about on today's show. That actually progress on the medical front is being made, even though it's slow. First, though, I think it would be helpful to understand type 1 diabetes at the cellular level. Uh, Jason, tell us what's going on inside bodies when this condition is going on. Well, I think you're exactly right, Alok. If you want to treat or cure diabetes, first you have to understand how it develops. And that means we'll be talking about things called beta cells. They are in your pancreas and they are what produces this insulin. So for you, Alok, presumably you have a normal amount of beta cells, you produce your own insulin. For me, I might not have any beta cells. That's why I'm not producing enough insulin. To understand this better, I spoke to Colin Dian. He's a professor specialising in diabetes at Cardiff University in Wales. And he told me how my immune system caused the onset of diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is an immune disorder in which the immune system destroys the insulin-making cells of the body which are in the pancreas. And it can start in childhood, and the commonest age to be diagnosed is 12, with the result that you end up uh, being insulin dependent, you need insulin for the rest of your life. The beta cells are attacked by cells called T cells, and they begin to seem to recognize those insulin making cells as foreign. And we can detect that this is happening very early on from antibodies in the blood to those beta cells. So that's how we can detect the process a long time before you've lost all of the insulin making cells and you have to be on insulin. You talked about um, people being diagnosed at an average age of 12. Um, before we go on to talk about immunotherapies, something I've always wondered is when I developed diabetes. So when I was 16, I was in the middle of my exams. I suddenly became quite ill. I went to the toilet quite a lot. I was drinking loads of water, craving sweet things. I thought it was just exam stress, but my parents forced me to go to the doctor. And when I was there, they tested my blood sugar. It was off the scale. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and I had to go straight to the hospital and on an insulin drip. It's quite a common story, really. Um, but clearly, I must have had, you know, the immune trait or something for type 1 diabetes. And I've heard theories since then that maybe I had an infection or the stress of exams could have triggered it or brought on the diabetes. That was about a decade ago. Um, do we know any more about this now? We do, Jason, and you described it very well, that your story is most people's story, that usually because it's not in the family, in nine out of 10 cases, it's not in the family, so people have no idea what it is. But in fact, what we know from the research, in, that's looking at cohorts from birth. So what they did is to take families that had type 1 diabetes, and they said, well, when you've got a new child, we're going to follow that child from birth. So firstly, they checked the genetics, and what they could see is that between the ages of about one and three years, most of the children seroconverted, which means that they started to have these antibodies present. They were fine. Most kids don't get it at that age. Um, but there was evidence that the autoimmune process had started. And then once you have two of these antibodies, they followed them up for another 20 years. And they could see that pretty much 90% of those who had those two antibodies from the age of three we're going to get it sometime later in life. So we can't tell for you in your particular case, but it's very likely that that autoimmune process started many, many years before 
and you weren't aware of it. And of course, the attraction here, this now becomes one of the diseases that we're best able to predict. The problem is at the moment, we can't grow the beta cells back. We can't put them back or make them return. When you get to the last 20%, you're on a knife edge. And at that point, if you get a virus infection, and when you're ill, it makes you more insulin resistant. So you need more insulin, then it cracks. And you really don't, you can't manage it now. And the blood sugars suddenly go up. So it appears to be a sudden event at the end, but it's actually the straw that broke the camel's back. Right. And do we know whether I have any beta cells left? Does anyone know? (laughs) We can find out. So we have been monitoring people after diagnosis. Most people don't lose every last one of them. Maybe if we protected them, maybe some of those could have grown back. How is it that the last ones are not killed? Um, That's a very intriguing story. You probably have a little bit, but not enough to do without insulin. And I should just emphasize, of course, when you were diagnosed and you're 16 and you're doing the exams, Jason, you had a fair number, you know, quite a bit left at that stage, probably the last 20 or 30 percent. If we could have stopped the disease at that moment, you might have managed with either no insulin or very small amounts. Okay, Jason, that was really interesting. I'm imagining that if you can actually understand how beta cells in the pancreas decline and work out a way of stopping it. I mean, that sounds to me like a really interesting course of research to find out how to stop this disease in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So that's what researchers like Colin are trying to do with immunotherapies. And that's the reason why it was so exciting to see the recent approval of the drug teplizumab by the FDA, which is America's drug regulator. Teplizumab can slow the progression of diabetes So clinicians can now give it to the people in America who they think will end up developing type 1 diabetes. So they can test for these antibodies in the way that Colin just described. You give them the drug, and that should slow the decline of their beta cells. When I spoke to Colin, he explained exactly how that process works. They tried it in people who had two antibodies. Um, This is children and adults who had two antibodies. And they also had what we call dysglycemia. In other words, their blood sugars were a little bit up but not at the level you would call diabetes and not at a level that the, uh, the children and adults were aware of. We know that when you've got this dysglycemia, 80% of those people will have their diabetes in five years. They gave them this immune intervention, this drug, which tweaks the T cells. It knocks them out for a, a few weeks and then they recover. But it seems that when they come back, the ones that were aggressively attacking the beta cells have gone and they don't grow back that quickly for several years. So the effect is that in a single course of 14 days, it's really only one dose, but it's spread over those 14 days. And what they found was a nearly three-year delay in the people who'd received just that 14 days of treatment. So that on average, they had three years without insulin compared to the people who didn't have the therapy. So that was presented to the FDA um, just recently on November the 17th. It was licensed for use in America. And that's a, it's an absolute landmark in our field. For 100 years, all we've had is insulin. And we just, as some people say, pick up the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff when it's all gone wrong. Now we perhaps can stop it happening. What they've tested so far is just a single course of therapy, right? But if you had a second dose of it, could that delay the onset of diabetes even longer? There is an issue potentially about using this drug twice because there may be um, reactions that can develop to the drug so it's not so effective the second time around. I like to think of this as the first bit of powered flight that the Wright brothers did. They flew a very short distance, actually, and you could run as fast as that plane. But it proved 
you can do this. And then you just get better and better and better. So there are lots of different strategies from now on. There are seven other drugs that have shown the ability to slow the disease. None of them have been taken into the clinic at this point because the drug companies were not convinced that anyone was actually going to buy this drug or be interested. So the door is open now that we can provide a lot of things, combinations of things. Combinations is what we've learned from so many different areas. In HIV, for example, one drug never did it, but three is perfect. And what are the benefits of delaying the onset of type 1 diabetes? The worst blood sugar controls are between the ages of 15 and 25. I'd almost ask you the question, Jason, because most of my patients that I look after, and I look after a lot of patients on, on insulin, they say, can I have one day without insulin? I go, no, <laughs> we can't do that for you. So what is three years without insulin? What's three years when you're a child um, that you can go to school, you don't have to think about all of those things, because as you know, you have to take, some people say, 20 to 40 decisions a day on what's going to happen next. Are you going to give this amount of insulin? How much carbs are you going to take? What exercise are you going to do? What do I have to be careful about? So you get three years when you have no restrictions at all. So that is a huge blessing in itself. But it has another very important advantage. The older you're diagnosed, the less time you spend when it's all a bit chaotic and actually your blood sugar control is better because you're more engaged with the disease. And we know that that stores up advantages for the future. If you've got good control at the beginning, it really reduces your long-term complications. So it's really money in the bank if we can actually get that. Um, prevention is obviously one thing, but is it possible that teplizumab has other benefits for people that have already been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes? Well, we don't know that. Well, I would say that as a big trial, the PROTECT trial, that is about testing it in people who've just been diagnosed within six weeks of diagnosis. You need to get in very quickly. And we're excited about the results of that, which we should hear in this, towards the end of the second quarter of next year. And that will show us those benefits, particularly, Jason. Um, the sense is that it won't allow people to stop insulin. But if you do make some insulin, as you described, it's much easier to control your blood sugars. And you may remember that in the first year, often it's not too tricky and you can manage with a couple of injections. Then after two or three years, it just it seems to be all over the place. I describe it as sailing on the Mediterranean versus sailing in the North Atlantic. The waves are much bigger. It's just much harder to do. So anything you can preserve will make more people able to get control, less variation. What we don't know yet is if you could really put an absolute stop to the autoimmune process, could those beta cells recover? And we've never been able to do it. We've never had enough drugs and power, if you like, to kind of absolutely stop it. And teplizumab clearly doesn't stop it dead in its tracks. And teplizumab is an immunotherapy. You've, you've talked about other therapies that you're testing. In terms of immunotherapies, does this open the door for a much wider potential? Absolutely, it does. And what's attractive is that we know so much more about the immune system than we did 20 years ago. There's a gap between having the genes and sera converting, actually starting the autoimmune process. Once you've started the autoimmune process, it seems it's inevitable. You're never going to get out of that. But many people have the genes and don't sera convert. So what is it that happened at that period of time? Almost certainly that's to do with the interaction with bugs in your environment or bugs in your own body called the microbiome. And that's how the immune system learns is the interaction with what are good and bad bugs. So people are developing things like vaccines against early viruses and also talking about how you change people's microbiome so that the whole process doesn't start in the first place. Is your hope for immunotherapies then that they could 
pave the way towards a cure? Yeah, I've just written an article <laughs> that says the beginning of the end for insulin. So I think in the first wave, what we'll try and do is have more and more people spending more and more time off insulin. I would love to make childhood diabetes a thing of the past. So Colin Diane there is uh, talking about quite a radical and exciting future for a condition that, Jason, you said that almost there's been no innovation on for almost a century. I mean, how does it make you feel about the fact that perhaps kids are going to be diagnosed later? That there could be a, the beginning of the end for insulin? I mean, that must be really exciting. Yeah, it's super exciting. And of course, the other great advantage of using this drug is that once parents know that their kids are likely to develop diabetes, it gives them more time to watch out for those symptoms to develop and they can be more aware of when those symptoms do develop that they don't end up in diabetic ketoacidosis. So Beth, who we heard from at the start of the podcast, runs an awareness campaign for those diabetes symptoms that we all experienced as people with type 1 diabetes. She calls them the four T's. That's toilet, thirsty, thinner and tiredness. GPs need to be really vigilant. People need to be really vigilant to look out for these signs. They were all there for Peter. You know, even when he was a little bit unwell and when he was really unwell, those four signs were really, really obvious. But for teplizumab to be effective as a treatment, young people need to be screened for type 1 diabetes. How would you like to see that being done? It could be two different pathways here, which is another really good thing, either through at birth a, a new screening process where they do the heel prick test. It could be added into that. The current study is looking at 3 to 13-year-olds. There's potential for children when they first start school, sort of age 4 to 5, to be tested, and then again when they start uh, high school, you know, sort of 11 or 12. So there's multiple ways here that we've got to capture people before onset occurs and to educate and to make sure that there's that awareness. And just finally, Beth, what's your hope for the future? I'm going to keep banging the drum for Peter until a cure is found. When Peter died, we asked about a screening process and we were told, oh, you're way ahead of your time. You know, well, we're not there yet and the technology's not there and the research isn't accurate enough to do these tests. We could only tell you if you're going to be 70% likely to get type 1 in the future, not 99%, which is what it needs to be to roll out such a screening programme. So in eight years, we've come this far. And that, for me, gives hope. And I think that if there's hope that drugs like this exist... And in the meantime, we can delay onset and we can continue to raise awareness. Then there's hope for a cure. So, Jason, Colin also mentioned a different trial that's going on using teplizumab. And that's where they're using it on people who've been newly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. How's that going? Yeah, so the idea here is that we all go through a honeymoon period. This is when our beta cells are still secreting some insulin. So we don't have to give those huge doses of insulin via injection there's some sort of regulation there. So if you can extend this period, then children will need less insulin and perhaps even no insulin for longer. So that means less of a burden and a reduced risk of complications and uncontrollable blood sugar levels that we've talked about. I spoke to a man named Harj. He's had type 1 diabetes since he was a teenager and he was actually reluctant to have children because he was afraid that they would develop the condition. But eventually he did have kids and one of them did go on to develop the disease. He told me about how his son, Marn, ended up on the teplizumab trial. So uh, it was May 2020. It was the, the actual date when he went to the hospital was May the 24th. Uh, I'll never forget that date. 
I heard him get up at about one in the morning to go to the bathroom. And then I said, why didn't you go before you went to sleep? And he said, I did. He said, I went to about nine o'clock and this was one. So it's four hours later. And I didn't want to think it, but it immediately occurred to me, oh no, you know, why is he peeing? You know, he hasn't had a lot to drink. So uh, I went back to bed, lay in bed, couldn't go to sleep. And after about half an hour, I thought, I need to test his blood sugar. I can't go to sleep until I know. And then when we did the blood test, his level was uh, 21.4. So a blood sugar of 21.4, that's a pretty definitive diagnosis. Uh, A non-diabetic person's blood sugar is between 4 and 7 most of the time. So how has he been coping since that day in May 2020? Well, we had a plan. So I said to him, I'll help you find a cure. We'll find a way to do this. Because for me, when I was young, that was the only thing that kept me going is that one day I wouldn't have to take these injections. And I started researching trials. I don't know if you remember, but May 2020 was a lockdown for COVID. And because of that, there weren't that many trials open. But eventually you did get him onto this teplizumab trial. Tell me about that. The infusion itself was, I think it was 10 days. And you didn't know if you were getting the drug or the placebo. And we still don't know because the trial isn't complete yet. But it comes in a glass vial, it's an infusion, so they have the long line, it lasts about three or four days and it has to be changed. And each day he'd come in in the morning, they'd put the the, uh, drug into his hand, they'd take a little bit of blood for various tests. After about five days he was saying, I don't want to do this anymore, you know, can we stop? And then I said to him, we can if you really want to, but think of the benefits. Jason, you've got to keep your fingers crossed uh, for all the participants of that trial, don't you? I mean, you can't extrapolate from one example in a clinical trial. This clinical trial is not even over. But what do we know about how the trial is going? I mean, does it look promising, this drug, for people who've already been diagnosed with the, the condition? Well, the clinical trial, as you mentioned, obviously isn't over yet. So no definitive results have come out yet. But Harj told me that his son did actually end up needing a little bit less insulin than they expected after he was involved in the trial. Um, at one point, he didn't need any insulin at all. It, it sounds very impressive, but of course, one of two things could have happened here. He could have either had an extended honeymoon period. So that's the period when your beta cells are still secreting some insulin and they can kind of self-correct your blood sugar before you become sort of fully diabetic where you need to inject your own insulin. The other thing is that the drug teplizumab could have been working But of course, we don't know the answer and we won't find out until next year. It's November 2023 when those results come out. And I'll be sure to get back in touch with Harj to find out what really went on. But the key thing about this trial is it demonstrates the potential for immunotherapies and for teplizumab. Loads more of these trials are going on, as Colin said, and there could be some really promising treatment options there. That is really exciting. And I definitely think you should get Harj and his son on the phone this time next year because I'm kind of curious to know. Okay, thanks, Jason. Delaying the onset of diabetes is a massive step forward. But what about that C word? Are we any closer to a cure? That's coming up. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on Babbage, our producer Jason Hoskin is on a quest for better treatments for type 1 diabetes, perhaps even a cure. Jason, you've told us that there's been very little innovation since insulin was discovered and isolated in 1921. But while that might be true, technology to help you manage your diabetes has actually transformed over the last decade, hasn't it? You've told us about your monitors and so on. I mean, things aren't so bad. Yeah, so the monitoring is is a really key example. So I used to have to prick my finger every time I wanted to check my blood sugar, which was not a very nice thing to do. And it only gives you a few data points every day, whereas now I have a data point being taken every minute by a continuous sensor. There's also other technological advancements that we've talked about on the show before, like an artificial pancreas system. That's when those sensors are connected to a pump, an insulin pump. And that's one step towards automating the delivery of insulin. It gives people with diabetes a few less things to think about. That, of course, isn't a cure, and the tech is still quite invasive. But there have been some more positive steps towards finding a cure in the biotechnology space. And someone who knows a lot about this is a guy called Sanjoy Dutta. He's the chief scientific officer of JDRF International, which is a major type 1 diabetes research charity. I spoke to him recently about the prospects for curing the disease. There are actually two major pathways to finding cures. And there are many under each of the two major pathways. One is where drugs like tetuzumab and many others that are being tested in the clinic fall under that first pathway or umbrella called disease-modifying therapies. It addresses the core problem of type 1 diabetes. It reduces the immune onslaught on beta cells. And there are also therapies being tested now that can regrow the lost beta cells in the body. So first avenue of finding cures for type 1 diabetes is through addressing the biological problem in autoimmune type 1 diabetes, immune and beta cell regeneration. The second pathway of cures, which we are feverishly pursuing, and there have been some really good advances recently, is not addressing the core biological problem, but addressing the problem of insulin dependence by making these insulin-producing beta cells from stem cell sources, like in a petri dish, in a flask. And when they are functional beta cells making insulin, they are put back in the body. So they function like a source of insulin production. The cells live and survive within the body and produce insulin. So a person with diabetes will not have to take exogenous insulin injection or pump therapy to survive. So you can cure the disease through stem cell-based approaches. And what sort of research is going on right now? There are about four or five clinical studies ongoing, and one of them has reported amazing results about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, where individuals with long-standing type 1 diabetes and a sub-condition called hypoglycemia unawareness, so the severe hypoglycemia patients, have received this therapy, i.e. the stem cells that make insulin, 
under transplantation conditions like with immunosuppression. The trial is being run by Vertex Pharmaceuticals and one individual is showing complete insulin independence, does not have to take insulin anymore, and the other individuals are also responding in that direction, although they're not as insulin independent as the first individual. The other major area of research is to find ways of protecting the cells that you're now implanting in the body. Because remember, the body will reject the cells as a foreign source, as well as there's an active autoimmune system in a person with type 1 diabetes. So are there immunotherapy approaches? Do we protect the cells through a biomaterial called encapsulation? Do we use other modern technologies like gene editing so that the cells are camouflaged from the immune system, but yet don't lose their ability to make insulin? So there's a whole lot of research going on, exciting times, but research going on in trying to protect the cells that are being now implanted into the body to provide insulin. And we're in very early stages at the moment, but I guess there's no idea of of the long-term hope, whether it's a one-time therapy or or anything like that. Those are all million-dollar questions that the academic investigators, the pharmaceutical companies are engaged in, and JDRF is funding significant amount of research in this space to find out exactly, you know, the, the answers to the question like, do I do it one time and it's good for six months, two years, five years, 10 years? Do I have to go for a top-up every now and then? And what is that frequency for the top-up? There are other questions we are answering along the way. It's good to have these questions to be answered because we're getting towards a perfect solution. Do you put these cells in the liver? Do you put them under the skin? Do you put them in the muscle? Do you put them in the abdomen? And where does it work the best? So there's lots left to work out. But the trials you mentioned there, like the one being run by Vertex, require participants to be on pretty horrible immunosuppressant drugs. That's because we all as humans reject stem cells from a foreign source. But then also people with diabetes have this autoimmune process, which essentially means if an identical twin gave me beta cells, my immune system would still reject them. But perhaps the immunotherapies that we spoke about earlier in the show could work in combination with these stem cell transplants? Absolutely. There could be immunotherapies combined with stem cells. We could make super stem cells or super beta cells, if you will, that definitely retain the capability of making insulin, but they're, we call them super cells or smart cells, so that they now escape the immune attack here, in which case you won't require any immunotherapy at all. You can just implant the cells into the body and they will do their job of insulin production, but not be recognized and destroyed by the immune system. So these will be cures combining these cells with immune therapies or even not requiring immunotherapies at all if you can really make the super smart beta cells. So that would be the sort of next generation of therapies after the ones that are in clinical trials today. But beyond that, you mentioned gene editing earlier. How could that improve the process? The holy grail will lie in the same cells that have now been genetically modified, genetically edited. So it's like editing a film. You take the clips you want and you make this film here. Right now you take these stem cell derived beta cells. You do not tamper with the capability of making insulin, but you do take out or put in certain genes or modifications there so that the beta cell is now no longer recognized by the body's immune system. 
And so that will probably be the holy grail treatment where you can implant these beta cells and not have to do any immunosuppression and not have to worry about protecting them in a, in a sheath around them like encapsulation. So another pharmaceutical company that JDF supported for over a decade called Viasite has already announced that they have started a clinical trial in Canada using their super beta cells, their gene-edited stem cell-derived beta cells in Canada, they've studied, but we do not have any data from that study yet. And just finally, obviously, it's your job to be positive, but do you think there will be an insulin-independent cure in your lifetime? I sure hope so. Ten years ago, we were in mice and other animal models. We're in clinical trials. It's not a one-trick pony. There are multiple ones ongoing, whether it's an immunotherapy trial for what I called before as a disease-modifying therapy, whether it's a stem cell-based therapy, you know, different kinds of those therapies. So that's the thing that that I think is, is a guarantee that it's going to happen. Jason, that's probably the most excited I've ever heard anyone talking about diabetes. And it is incredibly exciting. The gene editing, stem cells, these are things that are applying across medicine. But it's fascinating to see that they're being applied into diabetes. And I think your question at the end about whether there's going to be a cure was a pointed one. And I thought he might say, oh, he doesn't know. But he seems to be really optimistic about it all. Yeah, it was really refreshing to hear all of that and to hear so much energy being put into finding better treatments and cures for type 1 diabetes. But of course, we should inject a little bit of scepticism in here. You know, the problems that they need to solve are problems that all stem cell therapies need to solve. They need to do bigger trials and more studies. And we don't even know whether it's possible to do a stem cell transplant without needing immunosuppressants. Yeah, but this is generic, isn't it? Because all stem cells need technologies to get them into the body. And this is something that's going to happen over the next decade. Exactly. That's right. And further investigation is obviously needed into the adverse effects. But the potential is huge. And I think the Teplizumab news reflects that there's a real moment for trying to find new ways to treat type 1 diabetes. There is lots left to work out, but I'm certain that we won't have to wait another 101 years for the next treatment. I think it's important to inject the scepticism, uh, Jason. So that's our job as journalists, but I think that uh, I think I, I'm going to be quite optimistic about the whole thing. Uh, Jason, thank you very much for taking me through all of that. Thanks for letting me into this side of the studio, Alok. It's, it's really nice in here. All right, all right, enough, enough. Go back to your other room. <laughs> let me do the outro now. Thanks also to Beth Baldwin, Colin Diane, Harj Singh and Sanjoy Dutta. And thank you for listening to Babbage. For more of our news and analysis on healthcare, subscribe to The Economist. You can get your best introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. 